much do you think God cares about worship? You know, when I read the scriptures, I see a God who is passionate about worship. And not just that we worship, but how we worship, when we worship, how we worship, and the the reverence in which we worship, or, or lack thereof, you could say. In all of these matters, it, it, it matters how we worship. Because pure worship is beautiful. It's a pleasing aroma to our God. While corrupted worship, Isaiah chapter 1 tells us his soul hates. Did you know there's a type of worship that God hates? Yeah. It's pretty profound to think about, but it's true. And as we dive into our text, we will note the differences between the two. But whenever we talk about worship, we must remind ourselves that worship isn't just singing, as we did just a few moments ago. Many people mistakenly conflate singing with worship, but they're not the same, though. Singing is just one aspect of our worship. Worship is the act of giving reverence, honor, and devotion to God which is what we do when we sing. But it's also what we do when we pray. When we read God's word, when we share testimonies, when we give, when we listen to sermons, when we, when we especially take that step of faith to apply what we've read in the word and apply it to our lives. That's all worship. And that's funny enough why we call this a worship service. Because we do all of the above here at this service. You know, I've heard people come in. uh, There are some churches that structure their church a little bit different than ours, and they do all their hymns at the start, and then they do the word. And some people say, oh, okay, I just missed worship. (laughs) Oh, no, the whole thing is worship. But you did miss an important part. But that's that's another sermon. But no, all of this is designed to worship and connect with God. And it's designed to have, and as Christians, our heart's desire should be to commune with God and worship through all of these facets all week long, not just on Sunday morning. But this is indeed a crown jewel for the week for certainly me and for many of us. But as we turn to the word, Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem. Holy week has begun, as we noted last week. And in Mark 11, there's a more detailed account of this turn of events as he points out that uh, in his account that after the triumphal entry, he comes into the temple, he looks, he looks around, he observes the area, and then he goes to his place of lodging. Matthew abridges these two and goes right to the next point of action, which is what we see uh, in verse 12 as we pick up our narrative this morning that says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This is a rather intense incident that is recorded in all four gospel narratives. Anything recorded in all four narratives is usually pretty important. Well, frankly, they're all important, but that's another story. Three of them take place during what we call Holy Week. Now, the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. But John records his recollection of the cleansing of the temple back in chapter 2 of his gospel. Seemingly at the beginning of his time of ministry, not at the end. 
Well, what's going on there? Do we have a contradiction? No, absolutely not. Some say that there is, but there are two perfectly reasonable explanations for why this might be the case. Um, the first is that John, when he sat down to write his gospel, most likely arranged it thematically rather than strictly chronologically, which was frequent how, how they arranged their writings back then. That this would have been totally normal. And any of the minor differences between the accounts, like in, in John's account, Jesus is holding a whip as he does this. Some of you might remember that. And, you know, that could be reconciled easily. You know, John just happened to be the only one who recorded it while the others left out that detail. He wasn't, none of them were trying to make a, a police report of all of these incidents with every last detail. But who knows? Maybe John was the only one who saw it because everyone else ran away. <laughs> I mean, John was the only one who didn't run away during Jesus' betrayal towards the end of this week. Who knows? But what I do know is that the, the, the second theory that, again, makes total sense is that there were actually two questions. There's no reason to assume a contradiction here. But John, you might say, why would the temple need to be cleansed twice? That seems rather, in, rather excessive. Well, well, I'll, tell, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, last night before bed, my wife saw me put my coat and my shoes on, and she asked, hey, John, where are you going? And I said, oh, I'm just taking out the trash. And she said, why? You just did that yesterday. Now, if you have three kids, you know that's not a contradiction. Trash is piling up in my house all the time. <laughs> it's always piling up, and it constantly needs to be taken care of. If we understand that that's how it works in our own households, how much more in the hearts of men? I mean, you start to wonder, once, once you allow that to sink into your heart, you wonder why Jesus doesn't do this every year. There has to be a, more cleansings, perhaps, of the temple and the church, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. So what's so bad here? Why does Jesus need to take such extreme measures to cleanse this temple? Why? What's going on here? What's so bad? So let's first address these money changers. We might call them currency exchangers to give us the, a more clear idea of what they were doing. Much like when we go overseas today, the American dollar isn't accepted worldwide. You have to exchange your dollar for uh, the euro, for the yen, for the, the British pound, whatever it is where you go. Whatever the local currency is, you exchange. And the temple had its own currency there that that had to be exchanged by. And, you know, funny enough, I almost forgot to mention this. My wife and I were on a trip one time, and we were told in advance that at this particular location that we went to, you got to change your money at the airport because everywhere else in the country is going to rip you off. And that's basically what's happening here at the temple in Jesus' time. Some um, I, I've read some reports that said that these money changers were targeting foreigners specifically, charging them up to 25% fees on when they went to exchange their money. Could you imagine a fee that size? That's crazy. Another historian remarked that the, the animals that they were selling for use in the temple, by the way, this was for legitimate use in the temple, they were charging 10 times what you would pay for the same animal outside of Jerusalem at any, any other time of the year. So if it cost you $10 normally, they were charging $100. Yikes. How did it get this way? 
Well, Annas, the high priest, had used his position to allow merchants to purchase rights of concession to sell animals, exchange money, and all types of other things. And the reason he did it was, one, he got he, he made money by selling these rights, and two, he got a cut of the profits. Hence why he had no problem with the inflated prices. He was personally profiting off the commercialization of the temple itself. And the priests, of course, were in cahoots with them, and they found ways to disqualify the animals that were being brought to the temple so that, oh, this, this, you can't use this one. Here, use one of ours. Oh, you need to use this one. It'll be ten times the regular price. Starting this time, people have flocked from all over the world to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover. Millions of people would have been in Jerusalem at this time. There are reports of you know, all the lodging in the whole city is taken. People are literally staying in tents for this week because there's nowhere else for them to go. So why Jesus at the end of this narrative goes off to Bethany because that's where he found a place to stay. So to monopolize on the worship of God, the one that he had required, erecting barriers to worshiping God the way God had told us to worship. And especially when you think of the poor who struggled to pay the prices that these people were charging and the foreigners that God wanted to draw near and worship. That mustered up the wrath of Jesus against these people and therefore rebukes them heavily in verse 13 where he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. It's the translation I grew up with, so I might say that. It's obviously the same. He quoting, Jesus quoting here both from Isaiah 56 verse 7, which is part of our first reading, and Jeremiah 7 verse 11, contrasting the temple's intended use with the sad state that it had been reduced to, the state of which it had become. And guys, when we read our first reading this morning, didn't it stir your hearts to hear God's desire for people to come from all over the world and just worship him freely and let his house, his temple, be the center of this beautiful coming together of the whole world in worship of the true God. But rather, people are leaving that same temple, the temple that bears the name of our Lord with a a sick taste in their mouth, having just been ripped off in the name of God. May that never be so. That ought never be so. You see, the reason why Jesus came in the first place was he came to tear down barriers to worshiping God, and these people are putting them up. By the end of this week, the the very veil in the temple was going to be torn from top to bottom. Skipping ahead in our narrative to the end there, where the, the very symbol of the separation between holy God and sinful man itself would be torn by God himself, symbolizing for us of all ages that, the, that we can now approach the holy and perfect God, even though we are sinful men, through the blood of the cross, that the way had been opened, that we now have access to God through the blood of the Lamb. But these people are putting those 
basically putting the veil back up again. Perhaps now we can wrap our minds around why Jesus reacted the way that he did. This den of thieves was a mockery and antithetical to the very mission of why Jesus came. So now that we see what the text is, you know, the beauty is that we can now see what the text is not. I mean, I hear people quoting Jesus cleansing the temple quite a bit. Some people have taken this verse to mean that we shouldn't sell t-shirts in church, or we shouldn't sell books, or fish dinner tickets. Sorry, Ruthie. <laughs> people, but people have made that, a, that argument. But now that you've read the text for yourself, is that what this is talking about? No, not at all. Now, there's no barrier to worship in any of those things we just mentioned. Imagine if we charged for admission, though. Now, we got, that, that would be blasphemous. That would be a reason to start flipping some things over. But imagine so, you, you, to, to try to wrap our minds around this, imagine you charge for admission to come into church and worship God. And once you're inside, you're trying to worship God through prayer and meditating on God's word, and there's the roar of a marketplace all around us. People buying, selling, and doing business, yelling at each other, haggling over prices. Instead of the, the still peace that we have in here. I mean, listen for a second. This is what we strive for. A peace where we can quietly meet God with no distractions. And now we perhaps understand why Jesus flipped over those tables. All of these barriers to worship. Having to pay to worship God. In fact, that makes quite a bit of sense of the Reformation, doesn't it? Where 500 years ago, the Catholic Church was literally selling indulgences, which was a payment that you could make to get you time off of purgatory. Or time off for your loved ones in this middle ground between heaven and hell called purgatory. Which, again, you know... You're not going to find it in scripture. It was something they made up, but a hundred reasons why I hate that doctrine. But to say that you could sell, I mean, you could sell people's salvation. You could sell their tickets into heaven. How grotesque is that when you think about it? One of Martin Luther's contentions was, hey, if the church has the authority through money to let people into heaven, they should sell St. Peter's and use the money to let everyone into heaven. Start to understand why the Reformation had to take place. But that being said, I, I've heard plenty of sermons and speeches where people come in and they say, oh, we're going to turn over some tables. We're going to stir th some things up in the church. This isn't your grandma's church anymore. We're doing something new. I imagine you guys have heard something like that too. It's, a, it's become popular. But I ask you again, hey, is that what this is about? Is this about a rejection of tradition and an embrace of modernity? That's not in this text at all either. Frankly, once, once we do understand it, it becomes clear that the people with that mentality are literally the ones Jesus is ejecting from the temple. It, 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 this is a passage about restoring Israel's place of worship to a place where people meet with God again, the way it was always intended to be, not where people get in entertained, where people have to fulfill a duty or do commerce, God forbid, but to meet with God in a place of reverence and holiness. 
And all throughout biblical history, we see people, the people who labor to do that, being honored constantly throughout the scriptures. In Exodus 32, the Levites were honored for helping Moses resolve the golden calf incident, <laughs> where they were, the Levites were then gifted with the blessing of being the tribe of priests afterwards, shortly after. David was honored in 2 Samuel 7, where he essentially remarked, how could I live in this marvelous palace when God, when the ark of God was dwelling under a tent? Something about this isn't right. We need to build a temple to worship God. And God honored him for that. Not that God needed a temple, but he loved David's heart for that. And so God said, David, you're not going to make me the house. I'm going to build you a house, though. I'm going to grant you a house. And gave him the, the Davidic dynasty of kings that led right up to the Messiah. Which is why when we see people rejoicing for the son of David, that's why. It traces all the way back to David's heart. One last example, Hezekiah was honored in 2 Kings 18 for removing all the places of pagan worship from the land and restoring worship of the true God once again. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 29, he also cleansed the temple, restored true worship in it, and celebrated the Passover for the first time in generations. That's how messed up the people of Israel had become at, this, at that season, where the, the Passover, the big holiday, the, the center of worship, the thing that most centrally pointed towards the cross, so central to the worship of God, that had been neglected for centuries. But Hezekiah, he reads God's word and he brings it back. You know, the, it goes on, the, uh, the author of Chronicles goes on to make a very clear connection between the military victories that Hezekiah would later experience against the Assyrians. He correlates that with restoring true worship of God. The only reason they had this victory was because you put God first. Sounds awfully similar to a verse in the New Testament. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All these other things will be added unto you. Amazing. The nation was not ready to prosper until true worship had been restored. And with that in mind, I want to shift gears for a second. I, I think we forget how passionate God is about our worship and what a massive priority it is to him. I... I I, th I really think that sometimes we erroneously believe if Jesus was alive in the flesh here, he would be about all kinds of other things. He'd be, his main concern would be all types of other things. Some of us, I think, are convinced that if Jesus was in the flesh today on earth, he would storm into the U.S. Capitol and turn over a bunch of tables there and rebuke whatever political party we disagree with, right? I think some of us do believe that. But guess what? Politicians were corrupt back then too. There's nothing new under the sun. 2,000 years ago, politicians were corrupt? No. No, but Jesus didn't turn over tables in the Roman Senate, did he? He did at the temple that bears his name. That's where he started. And you know, it wasn't just political corruption. 2,000 years ago, we had all the same problems that we had today, and Jesus saw all of it. He saw the unfair oppression of the Romans. He saw the poverty that existed back then. He saw the injustices that were being committed. 
literally, again, all the issues we see today. But one thing consumed him, and that was man's relationship to God. The who and the how we worshipped him was the most important issue to Jesus, so much so that he came to make a way so that through the cross, man would worship neither on this mountain nor that mountain, according to John chapter 4, but that all men everywhere would worship him in what's in spirit and in truth. Everywhere. That's the priority. That's where Jesus would begin. You know, I once was having a conversation with a couple of ministers as they were lamenting that they were unable to get their congregations to be involved in various social justice issues, their words. And when it came my turn to speak, I told them they need to stop talking about that social justice stuff altogether. Stop it. Stop talking about it. Stop emphasizing that in your sermons. Preach the gospel. That's not your job. Focus on the gospel. And because, look, guilting people into political action never works. Trying to just tell people, do better, do more things, that doesn't work fundamentally. You want to change people, though. You want to see people change from the inside out, and you want to see people engage in really meaningful work? Get people to fall in love with Jesus. Get people to pray to him. Get people to seek the Lord's will for their life, and you just might see things start to happen. But to start by focusing on the need rather than focusing on what motivates the solution, that's to put the cart before the horse. That's to put the cart without the horse. It's just a cart sitting in somebody's driveway. There's no power to move it. It reminds me that William Wilberforce didn't just wake up one day in Great Britain and decide, you know what, today's a great day to end the slave trade system. No, that started, uh, he started his endeavors there for a very important reason. He got converted. He repented of his sins and believed the gospel. That's what changed everything for William Wilberforce. That's what changed, that, that only then did he begin to see the evils of the world around him and take up the cause. Same with John Newton, a, a former slave trader himself. He encounters the gospel and renounces his, his profession, labors against that cause, and later penned a hymn that you guys all know called Amazing Grace, where he then remarked, you know, how sweet is the sound that saved a wretch like me, that this gospel saved a slave trader like me. Thank you, God. My friends, the greatest problems facing mankind are only symptoms of our greatest need in our culture today, which is not that we haven't labored enough for social issues. It's that we've abandoned God. I see this so clearly. The only reason why the bars are full are because the churches are empty. The reason why children are struggling with identity issues is because they have no identity in Christ. Nobody, they don't have that foundation. Marriages are falling apart, not because we don't have enough programs, but because marriage itself is built to model Christ and his commitment to the church. Something our culture knows nothing about. Again, cart without the horse. 
And I think things are going to keep getting worse and worse. Because rather than churches preaching the gospel, churches have involved themselves in every issue under the sun except lifting high the gospel. You see, Jesus overturning tables in the church today wouldn't look like trading an organ for a guitar. That's not what overturning tables looks like. No, it would look like getting politics out of the pulpit. It would look like replacing guilt trips with the message of grace. The book of Romans tells us it's God's kindness that draws us to repentance, not guilt trips. It would involve getting rid of some of the blasphemous hymns that have been written about climate change and other self-centered themes and replacing them with Christ-exalting ones again. I know I'm preaching to the choir at this point, but it needs to be preached. But it is more than that, though. See, it's easy to point the finger at others. Our worship doesn't have to be radically misguided, nor actively ripping people off to be unacceptable to God. You see, hypocritical, duplicitous, and vain worship is also unacceptable to God. It's the very thing that Jesus warned way back in chapter 7. And, you know, many people will come to him in his name and he'll say, no, I never knew you. you know, many people will come in my name saying, I did this, that, and the other thing, but no, I never knew you. You, you had this big, beautiful outward appearance. You weren't changed from the inside. Your, your, your religious statements and the things that you did weren't in harmony with your life outside of the church. God calls for a harmony between the two. That our life that we live on Monday shouldn't contradict what we preached and proclaimed on Sunday. Because look, you could sing the best hymns, hear the best sermons, pray the most beautiful prayers, and still displease God. Because we have to worship him, not just in spirit, but in truth. My time is gone for me, so I'll have to close with this one thought. What barriers to worship would Jesus overturn in your own heart? If Jesus were to see your own heart, what would he overturn? What sins do you commit that you need to repent of? What are you holding back that deserves to be wholly given to God? What's keeping you from enjoying worship the way God intends? Whatever that is, Leave it at the foot of the cross this morning. Do that self-heart assessment and just leave that here. Confess it, believe it, because the blood of Christ is able to cleanse whatever it is. Just leave it behind and enjoy the pure worship that Jesus wants us to enjoy. Thanks be to God.